0: Welcome everybody to History Analyzed. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. This is a podcast which examines historical events and issues. The issue we're analyzing today is Hannibal versus Rome. And by that I mean Hannibal as the commanding general leading the army of Carthage against Rome in the Second Punic War. Don't worry, I'll explain all of these names and terms in a little bit. Before we get into this topic, some of you might be wondering why you should care about events that happened 22 centuries ago. First of all, you're listening to this podcast because you realize that history is very interesting. Second, this particular topic has a lot to do with your everyday life. Spoiler, Rome wins the war and becomes the dominant empire in the Western world. If Hannibal had been successful and Hannibal's home country of Carthage had prevented the rise of the Roman Empire, our lives today would be drastically different. Why is that? It's because the Romans had a great influence on the modern world. Let me outline some of the ways the Romans influence our current lives. Number one, the calendar and time measurement. We essentially use the calendar invented by Julius Caesar with a lot of help from the Alexandrian astronomer Sosigenes. I can hear some of you screaming at me, we don't use the Julian calendar today, we use the Gregorian calendar. My response is this. The Gregorian calendar is essentially... The Julian calendar, with a few tweaks that were mandated by Pope Gregory XIII in 1582. Because we use this Julian slash Gregorian calendar, we think in terms of 12 months in a year with between 28 and 31 days assigned to each month. And even countries that have their own calendaring systems still use the Julian slash Gregorian calendar to keep track of dates for all international items. And more importantly, we use a seven-day week because of the Romans. Most of us don't think about that. But we use a seven-day week because that's what the Romans used and their calendar was passed down to us. How about if we had a different number of days in a week? Today, most people get two days off, usually the weekends, after working five days, commonly called weekdays. If we had an eight-day week, would you still just get two? two days off per week, or would you get three? How about if we had a 10-day week? By the way, a 10-day week was tried at the time of the French Revolution. It lasted for about 12 years between 1793 to 1805, and it was brought back for a couple of weeks during the Paris Commune of 1871. The French Revolutionary Calendar still had 12 months, but they were each 30 days, meaning there were three 10-day weeks in a month. Since there are approximately 365 and a quarter days per year, at the end of the year, there were an extra five or six days added, depending upon if it was a leap year. But the really radical part of the French Revolutionary calendar was that each week was 10 days long. How would society be different today if we had a 10-day week, instead of a seven-day week. And of those separate from the calendar, our basic measurements of time come from the Romans. That's where we got the concept of dividing a day into 24 hours, and more specifically, two parts of the day of 12 hours each. It's where we get the concept of dividing the day into a.m. and p.m. In case you don't know, those initials come from Latin. A.m. stands for Antimeridium, meaning before midday, which we call noon, and PM stands for postmeridium, meaning after midday or noon. The Roman hours were different than ours. An hour in Roman times was not precisely 60 minutes like we have. They did not divide their hours into minutes and seconds. The length of an hour varied because they used 12 hours between sunrise and sunset and then 12 hours between sunset and the following sunrise. Using our modern accurate clocks, we know that there are not exactly 12 hours of sunshine and 12 hours of darkness every day. Also, the amount of daylight changes throughout the year. Days are longer in the summer and shorter in the winter. That's why Roman hours varied in length. Without going too much down this rabbit hole, the point is we get our concept of hours from the Romans. And we also get our concept that the day starts and ends at midnight from the Romans. To be clear, the Romans did not necessarily invent all of this timekeeping. My point is that the reason why we use 24 hours in a day in modern society is because of the heavy influence of ancient Rome on the development of western civilization. Number 2 way that the Romans affect our current life, the alphabet. The western world uses the Latin alphabet. That's the alphabet we got from the Romans. And even parts of the world that do not use Latin letters like in Asia, the Middle East, and Africa, you still see the Latin alphabet utilized in certain circumstances, such as business and travel. All airports around the world have a three-letter Latin alphabet designation. The number three way that the Romans have affected the modern world? Christianity. The spread of Christianity was greatly aided by the Roman Empire. Christianity really took off in the year 313 CE, when Emperor Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, which accepted Christianity. And in 380 CE... Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire with the Edict of Thessalonica. If not for the Roman Empire, would Christianity have become the dominant religion of the Western world? The number four way the Romans have affected the modern world, language. It's true, Latin is a dead language, but the Romance languages are descended from Latin. Those are Italian, French, Portuguese, Spanish, and Romanian. A large percentage of the world speaks those languages. Almost the entire Western Hemisphere, except the U.S. and most of the Canadian provinces, speaks one of the languages descended from Latin. And I say most of Canada because the province of Quebec speaks French. And supposedly, over half of all English words have Latin roots. A lot of terms used throughout the world come from the Romans. This is especially true with a lot of the names of places like Africa and Asia. Sorry to get sidetracked, but the modern use of Roman names for regions makes me think of this. If you've ever studied anything about World War I, you know that one of the reasons why the U.S. eventually entered the war was because of the Germans sinking the RMS Lusitania. That was a British ocean liner which was sunk on May 7, 1915 by a German U-boat with over 100 Americans on board. I bring it up because most people don't know where that name Lusitania comes from. That was the Roman province in the western part of the Iberian Peninsula, generally covering what is now Portugal. Getting back to how the Romans affected the present-day world. Reason number five, government. The form of government for the United States was inspired by the Roman Republic. It's where the Founding Fathers got the idea for separation of powers, We even use some of their terms, such as Senate and veto. Our concept of citizenship stems from the Romans. A sixth way the Romans affect the modern world is astronomy. Most of the planets have Roman names. The Romans named the five planets that could easily be seen with the naked eye. Mercury was named after the Roman god of travel. Venus was the Roman god of love and beauty. Mars was the Roman god of war. Jupiter was the king of the Roman gods and Saturn was the Roman god of agriculture. Two planets that were discovered in the last few centuries after the invention of the telescope were given Roman names. Neptune was the Roman god of the sea, and Pluto was the Roman god of the underworld. And yes, I know that in 2006, the International Astronomical Union declared that Pluto was no longer considered a planet. But it was considered a planet at one time. You might have noticed I skipped over Uranus. It's the only planet with a Greek name. Uranus was the Greek god of the sky. Frankly, I don't know why it was given a Greek name instead of a Roman name. A seventh way that the Romans affect us today is their system of measurement. That's where we get the basic measurements of a foot and a mile. Again, the Romans may not have invented these measurements, but it's how these units of measurement were passed down to us. For anybody outside of the U.S. listening to this podcast episode, I can hear you laughing at us Americans that we are still saddled with the imperial system of measurement, which is so difficult to use instead of switching to the metric system. Okay, you get the idea. The Western world owes most of its history and structure to the roman empire and because of the dominance of europe for about five centuries from the 1400s until world war ii there's a lot of western influence meaning roman influence throughout the rest of the world now that we've discussed why the punic wars matter to today's society let's set the scene for the punic wars first up is that term if the wars were between Rome and Carthage, why don't we call them the Carthaginian Wars? Why do we call them the Punic Wars? They were called the Punic Wars from the Latin word punicus. That was the Roman word for Phoenician. The Phoenicians were people from the east coast of the Mediterranean who founded a lot of cities throughout the Mediterranean, including Carthage. So the Romans viewed the Carthaginians as Phoenicians and used that term Punicus for the Carthaginians. Now that we know what the name means, when were these wars? The Punic Wars were three separate wars between Rome and Carthage that spanned 118 years from 264 BCE to 146 BCE. These were two rivals who fought for over a century to determine who would be the dominant force of the Western Mediterranean. The First Punic War went from 264 BCE to 241 BCE. The fact that Rome and Carthage were at war for 23 years in just that first war is insane. The Second Punic War began in 218 BCE and ended in 201 BCE. Seventeen years is also a very long time for a war. The Third and Final Punic War was relatively short. It was only three years from 149 BCE to the end in 146 BCE. To put this into perspective, when the Punic Wars occurred in regard to Roman history, these wars started a century and a half before Julius Caesar was even born. These wars started almost two and a half centuries before the foundation of the Roman Empire. The Punic Wars were fought at a time when Rome was still a republic. The time of emperors did not arrive until Octavian Caesar Augustus consolidated his power and founded the Roman Empire in 27 BCE. During the more than a century of the three Punic Wars, Rome was still a republic governed by the Senate and two consuls. Each year, two men were elected to jointly serve as consul for one year. These two men exercised the executive power of the republic. Historians talk about the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire as if they were two different entities. The main difference was the form of government. Under the Roman Republic, the Senate and the consuls were in charge. During the empire years, an emperor, sometimes more than one emperor, was in charge. However, for the peoples throughout Italy and other parts of the Mediterranean, even though Rome was still technically a republic, it was acting as an empire with subjugated provinces who all had answer to Rome. In other words, before the time of Augustus, Rome was a territorial empire even though it still had a Republican form of government. Whenever we discuss history, we have to look at what are the primary sources we have to determine what occurred. In more recent history, we have lots of primary sources. If we are studying the Vietnam War, there are plenty of military and government records. We also have accounts from journalists in newspapers, magazines, and on television. And there are plenty of accounts from individuals who either fought in the Vietnam War or who were present at the time. A lot of those people are still alive today. But when we're looking at events that occurred 22 centuries ago, there are not a lot of primary sources available. There are two sources that historians generally rely on for the Punic Wars. One source is the Roman historian Livy. His actual name was Titus Livius. But, like so many other ancient Romans, he's known by an anglicized name, and in English, he is simply known as Livy. As far as we know, Livy was born in 59 BCE, and died in 17 CE, meaning he was approximately 76 years old when he died. Livy wrote an extensive history known as the History of Rome from its foundation. It was an immense undertaking. It covers the beginning of Rome and ends with the reign of Augustus. Livy covers the Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage. But when relying on Livy's accounts, We have to remember that he wrote his history of the Punic Wars approximately two and a half centuries after the beginning of those wars and over a century after the end of those Punic Wars. So, we have to question the details contained in Livy's history. The other primary source for the Punic Wars is from the historian Polybius. He was Greek and is remembered for his work known as The Histories. The Histories... Covered the Punic Wars. As far as we know, Polybius lived around 200 BCE to 118 BCE. This means that he was born just after the end of the Second Punic War and lived during the Third Punic War. Because of his proximity in time to the actual events, he's generally considered the most reliable. In researching historical topics, it is best, when possible, to go to the primary sources. I have not read all of The Histories by Polybius or The History of Rome by Livy, but I have read parts when I was trying to get to the bottom of some events that have been recorded in contradictory manners. Okay, I know that this is just the history nerd in me, but it is pretty amazing to read history that was written over 2,000 years ago. It's amazing that these texts survive. Obviously, since I do not read Latin or Greek, I am reading the English translations. And due to the nature of translations, sometimes things get lost. But these texts are still pretty awesome. Although he was born and raised in a Greek city-state, Polybius was transported to Rome when he was in his 30s as one of many Greek hostages. And although he had to remain in Rome for approximately 17 years, he wasn't treated as a prisoner, but mingled in high levels of Roman society. In fact, Polybius was with the Roman general Scipio Aemilianus when Carthage was finally sacked at the end of the Third Punic War in 146 BCE. The names can get confusing. Scipio Emilianus was in the Third Punic War and was the adopted grandson of Scipio Africanus. I'm going to tell you a lot about Scipio Africanus later on because he is the triumphant general in the Second Punic War. In one podcast episode, I cannot get into too many details of a conflict which lasted for over a century. So, I'm going to provide you with a broad outline of the general conflict and get into some details regarding the second Punic War because I view that as the most significant. What were the causes of these three wars? There were several causes, but in my opinion, the primary one was this. There can only be one top dog. For centuries, the city of Rome had expanded its influence and power throughout most of the peninsula of Italy. During that time, Carthage was building its own empire on the northern coast of Africa. The city of Carthage was located in what is now the country of Tunisia. Carthage extended its empire throughout most of the coast of North Africa, as well as what is modern-day Spain, and even controlled most of the large Mediterranean islands of Sicily, Sardinia, and Corsica. If you look at a map, you can see how these two rival states were going to eventually come to blows. The two cities were only separated by approximately 370 miles, but the areas they controlled were a lot closer than that. As I just said, by the time of the First Punic War, Rome controlled most of the Italian peninsula. You know how Italy is shaped like a boot? Well, the very toe of the boot of Italy is separated from the island of Sicily by the Strait of Messina. That strait is only about two miles wide, On the other side of Sicily, there is another fairly narrow part of the Mediterranean called the Strait of Sicily. That strait separated the Carthaginian Empire from the island of Sicily by only about 95 miles. As I've said in other episodes, one of the things that makes history so interesting is that nothing is inevitable. But there are sometimes factors that lead to certain events or conflicts being likely to occur. The fact that Carthage was consolidating its power on the southern shores of the western Mediterranean at the same time that Rome was dominating the northern part of the western Mediterranean was going to lead to war unless the two governments could come to some understanding that both sides would consider beneficial. But that's not what occurred. Here's an extremely brief summary of the First Punic War. Rome and Carthage got into a dispute over the control of Sicily. The war dragged on for 23 years. Most of the battles occurred on the island of Sicily or on the seas. Before this time, Rome had never been a sea power. Conversely, Carthage had an impressive navy. So how did the Romans create their own navy? The Romans used a captured Carthaginian warship. They did a very early form of reverse engineering. This meant that the ship was deconstructed to extract design information. In other words, they took the ship apart and figured out how to make their own warships that were identical to the Carthaginian ships. Eventually, the Carthaginians had enough of this seemingly never-ending war and sued for peace. Rome ended up with Sicily, as well as eventually the islands of Sardinia and Corsica and Carthage was obligated to pay a large indemnity to Rome. The First Punic War bred a lot of animosity in many Carthaginians. One of the most angry was one of the top Carthaginian generals in the First Punic War. His name was Hamilcar Barca. He was the father of the subject of today's episode, the famous Hannibal. Although there is some dispute about this, The Spanish city of Barcelona was possibly founded by Hannibal's father, Hamilcar Barca, after the First Punic War. And the name of the city, Barcelona, supposedly comes from the name Barca. There's a dispute about this, and we don't know for sure. There is another current city in Spain that most people agree was founded by the Carthaginians. The city of Cartagena was founded between the First and Second Punic Wars. There may have been another settlement at that location before. The name Cartagena meant New Carthage. Let's get back to Hamilcar Barca. He was one of the leading generals for Carthage in the First Punic War. Hamilcar survived the First Punic War with an incredible hatred of Rome. Supposedly, Hamilcar made his son Hannibal swear an oath when he was around nine years old that he would always be an enemy of Rome. After the First Punic War, Hamilcar led a Carthaginian army to the Iberian Peninsula. That peninsula is modern-day Spain and Portugal. The Iberian Peninsula was decentralized, meaning it was not a united country but was mostly run by separate peoples who had small settlements but nothing approaching the giant city-states of Rome and Carthage. Hamilcar took his young son Hannibal with him to the Iberian Peninsula. Hamilcar conquered most of what is now Spain and made it a part of the Carthaginian Empire. This was a valuable area because there were lots of silver mines. Hannibal learned from his father how to command an army as well as logistics and tactics. When Hannibal was approximately 18 years old, his father, Hamilcar, died in battle in Iberia. I love the dramatic way Polybius describes the death of Hamilcar. The manner of his death matched his past achievements, as he died in the thick of battle against a particularly aggressive and powerful tribe, fighting fearlessly throughout, with little thought for his own safety. When Hamilcar died his son-in-law, Hasdrubal, became the commander. And then, years later, Hasdrubal died. And even though Hannibal, at that point, was only around 26 years old, the Carthaginian army appointed Hannibal to the command of all of their troops in Iberia. And true to the oath he had made to his father, Hannibal quickly made himself an enemy of Rome by starting the Second Punic War. In reality both sides were to blame for the start of the Second Punic War. Rome and Carthage had made a treaty that the Ebro River, which runs through the northeastern part of modern day Spain, was the dividing line between the areas of influence in Iberia. This meant that the areas south of the Ebro River belonged to Carthage, and the areas north of that river belonged to Rome. Yet, several years after the treaty was made, the Romans made an agreement with the city of Saguntum. That city is now known as Segunto, Spain. Hannibal knew what he was doing. He understood that if he attacked Seguntum, which was an ally of Rome, that this would lead to war with the Romans. So, in 219 BCE, Hannibal surrounded Saguntum, laid siege to the city, and eventually sacked the city. This resulted in the Romans declaring war on Carthage in 218 BCE. Before I ever studied the Punic Wars, I always wondered why Hannibal brought his army, along with his war elephants, over the Alps to invade Italy. Why didn't he just cross the narrow part of the Mediterranean from Carthage to the southern part of Italy? There are two main reasons for this. Number one, after the First Punic War, Carthage no longer had a dominant navy to transport a large army. Number two, More importantly, Hannibal and his army were not located in Africa when the war broke out the Carthaginian army was located in Iberia, modern-day Spain. That's why Hannibal decided to take the land route from the Iberian Peninsula to Italy. Keep in mind that most of Italy had been conquered by the Romans long ago. If you look on a map, to get from the Iberian Peninsula to the Italian Peninsula by land, an army would have to march through what is now southern France, and was then called Transalpine Gaul. For Hannibal to get his army to Italy so he could take the fight to the Romans, he was going to face several obstacles. The first was he had to cross the Pyrenees Mountains, which separate modern-day Spain from France. In those days, separated Iberia from Gaul. The second challenge was crossing the southern part of Gaul. At this point, Gaul was still a decentralized area of various Gallic tribes. This was about 160 years before Julius Caesar conquered Gaul and added it to the Roman Empire. This meant that Hannibal had to march his army through hostile territory. The Gauls did not want to see any army pass through their lands. You have to keep in mind that an army is like a moving town, and it was the same 22 centuries ago as it is today. This moving town needs to be fed. So in ancient times, the Carthaginian army was going to need food as well as fodder for the horses, pack animals, and the war elephants. No tribe wanted to see thousands of hungry men and animals come through their territory and eat and take away most of their food. Hannibal managed to get his army through southern Gaul and reach the Alps. It was an impressive feat since he had to fight his way through the hostile territory with the various Gallic tribes and cross wild country, including rivers. The largest river he had to cross was the Rhone. Polybius describes how Hannibal had to fight the local Gauls to cross the Rhone River. He also describes the difficulty of ferrying 37 elephants across a large river. Okay, so Hannibal now has his army, the horses, pack animals, and elephants at the Alps. The question arises, why did he cross over the crests of these mountains? There was a coastal route which went along what's now the French Riviera between the current cities of Nice, France, and Genoa, Italy. The reason Hannibal did not take that coastal passage was because the Romans had had an army there guarding that route in case Hannibal tried to take his army from Iberia to Italy. That's why Hannibal went inland in southern Gaul and had to cross over the high parts of the Alps. The Romans always viewed Italy as a secure place. And when I say Italy, I'm talking about the Italian Peninsula. There was no unified country called Italy until 1861, and even then they did not add Rome to that unified country until 1870. But the Romans had unified Italy under Roman rule before the start of the Punic Wars. Italy seemed very secure because it's a long peninsula, and it was difficult to transport large armies across the seas. The only part of Italy which connects to the mainland is the very northern part, and it's protected by the Alps. So the Romans thought that by guarding the coastal route, they could prevent the Carthaginians from invading the Italian peninsula. They figured, who would be crazy enough to try to bring an army across the forbidding crests of the Alps? It took Hannibal a total of five months to take his army from New Carthage in Iberia, which is now called Cartagena, Spain, over the Alps into the Po River Valley in northern Italy. The actual crossing of the Alps alone took 15 days. Hannibal lost almost half of his army to the winter elements of crossing the Alps, the dangerous conditions of these narrow mountain passes, and fighting the local Celts who lived in the Alps. When Hannibal crossed the Rhône River in southern Gaul, which is now southern France, he had approximately 38,000 foot soldiers and 8,000 cavalrymen. When he arrived in Italy, Hannibal had approximately 20,000 men. It's unclear how many of the elephants survived the crossing of the Alps. You will see in articles and in a lot of sources that claim only one elephant survived the crossing of the Alps. That is not true. Polybius does not state how many elephants survived the crossing. But he does mention that Hannibal used his war elephants in the Battle of the Trebia. It was called that because it was fought along the Trebia River in northern Italy. That was the first major battle in the Second Punic War and occurred in December 218 BCE. Hannibal was brilliant and easily crushed the Roman army commanded by Sempronius Longus. Although he does not state how many elephants existed at the start of the battle, Polybius states that only one elephant survived after the Battle of the Trebia. It appears to me that this is where people make the mistake and claim that only one elephant survived the crossing of the Alps. And although we don't know how many elephants survived the Alps crossing, it was clearly a decent number because Polybius refers to the war elephants being used at the Battle of the Trebia. Most historians feel that Polybius is the most reliable source on the Punic Wars. I certainly think he is. And in his writings, Polybius even makes an argument as to why you should believe him. Polybius wrote, I say this confidently because some of my informants were there at the time, and I have visited the places in question and followed Hannibal's route through the Alps on a fact-finding tour. At some point after the Battle of the Trebia, Hannibal developed an infection in one of his eyes and lost the use of that eye. That's all that Polybius says about Hannibal losing the sight in his eye. Later historians expounded upon it and said that he even had to cut out that eye to prevent the infection from spreading. That seems to me unfounded because I cannot find that in Polybius' writings. The reason I bring that up is because in art depictions of Hannibal, you often see him with an eye patch, but other times he does not have an eye patch even though it's after the Battle of the Trebia. Hannibal followed up his victory at the Battle of the Trebia with another thrashing of the Romans in June 217 BCE in the Battle of Lake Trosimene. There had been two major battles and both were won decisively by Hannibal and his army. This sent the Romans into a panic. As a result, they elected Quintus Fabius Maximus as dictator. Nowadays, when we hear the term dictator, we think of Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin. But the term comes from the Romans. In ancient Rome, in times of great peril, one man could be elected as dictator. This man would have complete power, meaning that he could not be overruled by the consuls or the senate. Once the crisis was over, The dictator lost his powers, and the consuls and the Senate resumed governing the Roman Republic. Quintus Fabius Maximus is commonly known in history simply as Fabius. He's remembered for the development of the Fabian strategy. That's the military strategy of avoiding pitched battles and frontal assaults. The army mainly harasses the enemy and tries to wear it down through a war of attrition. Under the Fabian strategy, the army would only attack the enemy when an exceptional opportunity was presented. Possibly the most famous example of a general using the Fabian strategy was George Washington in the American Revolution. After almost losing the Revolutionary War at the Battle of Long Island in August 1776, Washington eventually adopted the Fabian strategy and wore down the British, both militarily and politically until the british lost their will to continue the war another famous example of the fabian strategy was by the communist forces against the united states in the vietnam war eventually the u.s lost its will to continue fighting that war and pulled out in the early part of 1973 while applying his famous strategy Fabius avoided any large battles with Hannibal's army. Hannibal marched his army throughout Italy, devastating the countryside. After approximately a year of this Fabian strategy, the Romans grew frustrated. It's unclear how this came about, but Fabius was pushed out of office as dictator. Two new consuls were appointed to take the war to Hannibal. They were Gaius Terentius Varro and Lucius Aemilius Paulus. This is what Hannibal was hoping for. This resulted in the greatest defeat in the history of Rome, the Battle of Cannae. Before I discuss the battle, I first must explain the pronunciation. The site of this battle is spelled C-A-N-N-A-E. I've read this name countless times. When I hear people discuss the battle in documentaries, lectures, audiobooks, I hear the name pronounced several ways. I do not speak Latin, so I have researched this online, trying to find out how it should be pronounced. It seems that the two most accepted pronunciations are can I, as in can I borrow a pen, or canny, as in the canny fox. It appears that the pronunciation of can I is the Latin pronunciation, but the Anglicized pronunciation, meaning in English, is Cannae. I'm going with the Latin pronunciation of can I. Anyway, let's get to the battle. The Battle of Cannae is considered Hannibal's masterpiece. This battle is still studied by military tacticians and war colleges to this day. The battle occurred in the summer of 216 BCE. The traditional date listed for the battle is August 2nd. Since this was before the adoption of the Julian calendar, we are not sure of the exact date, but that is the traditionally accepted date for the battle. The Battle of Cannae took place in southeastern Italy about 40 miles northwest of the modern city of Bari. Essentially, this is what happened. Hannibal positioned his weakest troops in the center of his line and had those troops a little forward than his two flanks. He positioned his best troops on the right and left flanks, and they were positioned a little back from the center. When the Romans attacked the center of Hannibal's line, they were easily able to push back Hannibal's center. But this was all planned. As the center of Hannibal's line slowly retreated, both wings of Hannibal's army surrounded the Roman army. This is called a double envelopment. By the time they realized what was going on, the Roman army was completely surrounded by Hannibal's army. This was a total disaster. The numbers I am using I got from police. The Romans went into the Battle of Cannae with approximately 80,000 infantrymen and 6,000 cavalrymen. Hannibal's forces numbered approximately 40,000 infantry and 10,000 cavalry. Despite the large numerical superiority, the Romans were soundly defeated. Approximately 70,000 Romans died at the Battle of Cannae. Hannibal lost less than 6,000 men. No wonder people consider this Hannibal's masterpiece. He inflicted almost 12 times as many casualties on the Romans as his own Carthaginian army suffered. By the way, when I refer to the Carthaginian army, I'm just using that as an easy term of reference. Hannibal's army contained soldiers and cavalrymen who were not Carthaginian. They included Libyans, Iberians, and Celts. And although they were not all native Carthaginians, they were all fighting in the Carthaginian army. Cannae was a disaster like the Romans had never suffered before or after in their long history covering centuries. Hannibal thought that the Romans would sue for peace. He had thrashed the Romans at the battles of Trebia, Lake Trasimene, and now had completely annihilated the Roman army at Cannae. Probably any other nation state would have given up after such resounding defeats. But that was the strength of the Romans. They never gave up. As the Roman historian Livy explained, the Romans had the advantages of seemingly limitless supplies and inexhaustible manpower. If an enemy, in this case Hannibal, wiped out a Roman army, they merely raised a new army and continued the fight. Hannibal had very limited resources when it came to the numbers of men in his army. That's why, even though he was winning battle after battle, in the long run he was losing because he could not resupply his army with men and material like the Romans could. These military triumphs by Hannibal were Pyrrhic victories. That's spelled P-Y-R-R-H-I-C. That's a term you might have heard. A Pyrrhic victory is a success that comes with unacceptable costs In other words, the gain is not worth the price. You hear this term in everyday life, not just relating to military battles, but political conflicts or corporate competitions or even fights between individuals in their personal lives or at work. The term stems from Pyrrhus. He was the king of Epirus, which was a section of northern Greece. Before the Punic Wars, Pyrrhus led an army into southern Italy and Sicily against Rome. Pyrrhus defeated the Romans in several battles, but suffered heavy losses of his own troops. Plutarch, the famous Greek philosopher and historian, wrote that Pyrrhus said after a victory against the Romans, If we are victorious in one more battle with the Romans... We shall be utterly ruined. I'll give you a famous Pyrrhic victory appearing in American history, the Battle of Bunker Hill. On June 17, 1775, the British defeated the American forces on Breeds Hill outside of Boston. For some reason, the battle became known as the Battle of Bunker Hill, even though it occurred on Breeds Hill. The British defeated the Americans and captured the hill, but the Americans lost about 400 men and killed and wounded, and the British lost over 1,000 casualties. The commanding British general, Henry Clinton, saw it as a Pyrrhic victory. He wrote in his diary that a few more such victories would have shortly put an end to British dominion in America. Although Hannibal was inflicting far more casualties on the Romans than he was suffering, the Romans could afford to lose those men and Hannibal could not. He couldn't afford the price he was paying for his victories. After Cannae, there was really no Roman army standing between Hannibal and the city of Rome. If Hannibal could have sacked Rome, he could have won the war for Carthage. So why didn't he try to conquer the city of Rome? For over two millennia, historians have debated as to why Hannibal did not immediately march on the city of Rome after his decisive victory at Cannae. Some historians have presented arguments that I find ridiculous, such as the claim that Hannibal did not want to destroy Rome itself because he respected Rome. This is a guy who swore an oath to his father when he was 9 years old that he would always be Rome's enemy. I agree with the historians that argue that Hannibal did not try to capture the city of Rome because he knew he couldn't. Even though he won a tremendous victory at Cannae, the Carthaginian army did not have the strength to sack the city of Rome for several reasons. Number one, it was somewhere around 200 miles to march from Cannae to the city of Rome. Hannibal's army probably only had supplies for a few days and was exhausted after the battle. It would take a while before he can march his army all the way to Rome. Number two, Rome was a huge city by antiquity standards. Although it would later grow to about a million people, at the time of the Second Punic War, Rome had a population of around A quarter of a million people. There were two Roman legions in Rome to protect the city. A legion consisted of somewhere around 5,000 men. Hannibal understood that he could not conquer the city of rome protected by the two legions as well as the additional resources of men of fighting age within the city that could also be employed as a defense and i'm just referring to men because in those days it was only males in the military reason number three rome was a well-defended city The Servian Wall surrounded the city. The Roman historian Livy indicates that Hannibal did not try to attack the city of Rome because of the extensive wall. The Servian Wall was named after the Roman king Servius in the days Rome had kings before Rome became a republic. It was built centuries before the Second Punic War. This was a pretty impressive wall that was over 30 feet tall and about 12 feet thick. There are segments of that wall that still exist today. It's pretty cool to see them after all these centuries. Reason number four, Hannibal could not sustain a successful siege. Hannibal was aware of the defensive wall around Rome. He did not have the military equipment to breach the Servian wall. That meant he would have to conduct a siege. And that meant that Hannibal would surround the city with his army, cutting off all essential supplies and try to starve out the Romans. His force was too small to operate a siege that would have taken months. Also, the Romans would have raised other troops from their allies throughout Italy and have attacked the Carthaginians from outside of Rome. For all of these reasons, Hannibal could not conquer the city of Rome, and just as important, Hannibal knew it. After Cannae, Hannibal spent the next 14 years marching his army around Italy. I think this often gets overlooked. That is an incredibly long time to keep an army together in hostile territory. After the devastating loss at Cannae, the Romans went back to the Fabian strategy and avoided ...any major battles with Hannibal. Hannibal continued to rack up military victories, but not on the scale of Cannae. As the years dragged on, Hannibal's military power was waning. The government back in Carthage did not send Hannibal additional troops. Hannibal hoped to win over the Italian city-states. He tried to convince them to join him so they would no longer be ruled by Rome. He had some minor successes and acquired some allies but he was never adequately supplied by his allies from the Italian city-states. And worse for him, those city-states quickly realigned themselves with Rome once Hannibal left the area and the Roman armies returned. I know I'm skipping over 14 years, but essentially nothing major happened during that time, and I'm trying to keep the Second Punic War to one podcast episode. Hannibal was kind of like Robert E. Lee was in the American Civil War. Both were brilliant at winning individual battles, but did not know how to win the entire war. And I'll tell you another way that Hannibal was like Robert E. Lee. Both seemed unbeatable until they met the general who could beat them. For Lee, it was Ulysses S. Grant. For Hannibal, it was Scipio Africanus. It's now time to introduce the other main character of this story, Scipio Africanus. His original name was Publius Cornelius Scipio. The problem is that there were several Scipios who were significant in the Punic Wars. The father of Scipio Africanus was also named Publius Cornelius Scipio. Some Romans were given an agnomen. Romans normally had three names. And agnomen was a fourth name occasionally given as an honor. This was essentially a nickname given to some Romans to distinguish them. Usually this was given after some great achievement. Spoiler, Scipio is the general who eventually defeats Hannibal. Because of his victory over Hannibal, Scipio was thereafter known as Scipio Africanus. I've always thought that that sounded like an incredibly cool name. The Agnomin Africanus was to signify that Scipio was the conqueror of Africa. Most people have heard of Hannibal, but few people today have heard of Scipio Africanus. And that fact really bothers me. Number one, Scipio Africanus is considered by historians and military people as one of the greatest generals and strategists of all time. And number two, he defeated Hannibal. So, who was Scipio Africanus? I'm going to mainly just refer to him as Scipio. During the Second Punic War, Scipio was sent to Iberia, in what is now modern day Spain, to fight the Carthaginian forces there. In 209 BCE, Scipio captured Carthago Nova, meaning New Carthage, the modern day city of Cartagena, which had been the main base. For Carthaginian forces in Iberia. Over the next several years, the Roman forces under Scipio conquered the Carthaginians throughout Iberia. By 205 BCE, Carthage had lost all of its power in Iberia, and that land was on its way to becoming a Roman province. It was now time to take the fight to Carthage. Scipio returned to Rome. Due to his success in Iberia, Scipio was elected as consul in 205 BCE. He was only 31 years old. Scipio went down through southern Italy and crossed over to Sicily. From there, he invaded Africa with his army. After Scipio defeated two African armies, it seemed that peace was at hand. There was an armistice as the two sides tried to reach a peace treaty. Hannibal was recalled from Italy to Africa, to save his homeland. A tentative treaty was reached, and the Roman Senate agreed, but the Carthaginian government did not. This led to the decisive battle of Zama. The Battle of Zama was south of the city of Carthage in modern-day Tunisia. We're not always sure of dates from ancient times, especially prior to the institution of the Julian calendar in 45 BCE. Anyway, the date historians use for the Battle of Zama is October 19, 202 BCE. The day before the conclusive battle at Zama, Hannibal and Scipio met face-to-face to discuss possible peace terms. Who knows what was truly said? I've read what the Roman historian Livy presents as actual quotes of what the two generals said to each other. Considering that Livy was writing this history about 200 years after the event, it's very difficult to believe that he knew what the two great generals said to each other. Here is my summary of what Livy wrote that Hannibal asked for lenient peace terms from Scipio and reminded Scipio that Hannibal had previously been in the stronger position against Rome. Scipio's reply was that he was not feeling magnanimous after all the death and destruction caused by Hannibal. And further, Scipio was upset that a tentative peace had been reached and then the Carthaginians reneged on the deal. In summary, Scipio told Hannibal that he would have been more forgiving if the Carthaginians had lived up to the tentative peace treaty previously agreed upon. He would also be more charitable to the Carthaginians if Hannibal had voluntarily left Italy and sought peace, but that's not what occurred. Hannibal only left Italy because Scipio had a Roman army on Carthage's doorstep. Hannibal now had the gall to seek especially favorable peace terms after Scipio had invaded Africa, defeated two armies, And, as a desperate measure, the Carthaginian government called Hannibal back to save their city. The next day after the historic meeting of the two great generals, Scipio's army defeated Hannibal's army at the Battle of Zama. I don't go into details of what occurred in battles, but there's one detail from Zama that is famous. To offset the use of war elephants by the Carthaginians, Scipio came up with a brilliant plan. Instead of continuous battle lines from left to right, Scipio formed his soldiers with empty columns going all the way from the front to the back. Essentially, he created aisles for the elephants. He understood that the elephants would pick the path of least resistance, and instead of charging through countless numbers of armed soldiers, they simply ran through the empty passageways. The battle was a complete victory for the Romans. According to Livy, of the Carthaginians and their allies, Above 20,000 were slain on that day. About an equal number were captured, with 133 military standards and 11 elephants. Of the victors, as many as 2,000 fell. That's an impressive victory for Scipio, losing around 2,000 men while killing about 20,000 and capturing an additional 20,000 from the Carthaginian army. That was the end of the fighting in the Second Punic War, and that's why he got the agnomen Scipio Africanus. After the Battle of Zama, a peace treaty was eventually reached in 201 BCE. According to Livy, the peace terms were, Carthage would govern itself but lost all of its overseas territories and most of its African territories. Carthage would return all of the Roman prisoners. Carthage would be allowed only 10 warships. The Carthaginians could keep any tamed elephants that they already had, but could not add any more. And here's a big one. The Carthaginians could not conduct any war in or out of Africa without the express permission of the Romans. Carthage would make peace with Numidia, and Carthage would feed the Romans until they returned to Rome. Also... Carthage would pay Rome an indemnity of 10,000 talents of silver in equal installments over 50 years. Of course, you're wondering what was a talent of silver? A talent was a measurement of weight that was used for large transactions like this one. How much did a talent weigh compared to modern metric or imperial measurements? I'm not sure. It's unclear. I've read a lot of varied estimates. But the point is, It was an awful lot of money. Scipio did not take Hannibal as a prisoner back to Rome. In ancient Rome, successful generals would be granted a triumph. That was essentially a huge parade throughout the city, which often displayed enemy prisoners. But Scipio allowed Hannibal to return to Carthage, and it proved to be a wise decision, because Hannibal was one of the main people who pressed the Carthaginian government to accept Rome's peace terms. Years later, Hannibal became a mercenary general in the kingdom of Bithynia, which was located in the northern part of modern-day Turkey. We're not exactly sure how Hannibal died, but it appears that Roman soldiers were sent to Bithynia to capture him and, rather than being taken alive, Hannibal drank poison. We believe that Hannibal died somewhere around 182 BCE. So after the Second Punic War, Rome was dominant and Carthage was a mere shell of its former self. So why was there ever a Third Punic War? A lot of it had to do with one man. In history, he is known as Cato the Elder. He was a veteran of the Second Punic War. Sometime in the 150s BCE, Cato and several other Romans visited Carthage. Cato was shocked at how well Carthage had recovered from the Second Punic War. The city seemed to be prosperous and growing in strength. Cato became famous for finishing all of his speeches in the Roman Senate with the phrase Carthago delenda est, which means Carthage must be destroyed. By the way, we're not sure of the exact phrase he used in Latin because we don't have a contemporary source which recorded the exact wording, but the sentiment was that Carthage must be destroyed. No matter what he was talking about, Cato would end his speeches telling the Senate that Carthage must be destroyed. Cato finally got his way. As I told you earlier, one of the terms of the peace treaty ending the Second Punic War was that Carthage could not wage war, even a defensive war, without Rome's permission. The Kingdom of Numidia, which was just to the west of Carthage, was an ally of Rome. The Numidians kept raiding and annexing. Carthaginian territory. When Carthage asked Rome for permission to defend itself, the Romans said no, since Numidia was a Roman ally. Eventually, the Carthaginians sent an army against the Numidians, and this gave an excuse to the senators of Rome who agreed with Cato, who wanted to destroy Carthage once and for all. The Third Punic War was by far the shortest. The war started in 149 BCE, and ended three years later. The war was fought entirely in Carthaginian territory. In 146 BCE, the Romans sacked the city of Carthage. They destroyed the city, killed all the men, and took the women and children as slaves. It was the end of Carthage. And who was the commanding general for the Romans who destroyed Carthage once and for all? He is known in history as Scipio Emilianus. He was the adopted grandson of, Scipio Africanus. There's an ongoing myth that Romans put salt in the ground so nothing would grow where Carthage had been. But as far as we know, that was not true. Some historians believe that the Romans made this up to further enhance their fearsome reputation. Basically, they wanted all enemies or potential enemies to fear them and to think that they should definitely not mess with the Romans. That's it for today. Please subscribe to this podcast. Please like this and my other episodes. Ratings and likes greatly help with the placement of podcasts on particular apps. If you're listening on a podcast app like Spotify or Apple, which allow for ratings, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating. Some apps allow for reviews, and I'd also greatly appreciate a kind review. Please tell your friends, relatives, co-workers. Word of mouth is the best way to increase the audience for this podcast. Check out my website, historyanalyze.com, where you will find links for fun items for all of the history geeks. Thank you for listening. Catch you next episode.